0: In Session with Dr. Farid Halaqi. Good evening, welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadid halakwi and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook, get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program and the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my soundcloud page and podcast on spotify and apple podcasts Uh, happy new year this is my first show of 2022 i almost said 2021 that will take some getting used to and because of that i'll do my top 10 books of 2021 in the last segment of today's show in um, the second segment, I'm going to follow up on the book with some thoughts on time and the psychology of time and some things about how we think about time. Um, but before I get into the book of the week from last week, the book of the week from for this week is Exercised by Daniel E. Lieberman, Exercised, Why Something We Never Evolved to Do is Healthy and Rewarding. Um, I've had this for a few months and definitely wanted to get around to reading it. I've I've heard a lot of people uh, talk about it, how good of a book it is, and um, even listing it in their top books of the year. Uh, And also, I think a lot of people around the new year are planning to exercise more, Uh, not that I think it's the right time or that this is the only time to make that decision, but I think for many people, that's what's happening. So I thought it'd be kind of interesting to read it this week anyway. Um, on top of wanting to read it just generally. So, Exercised by Daniel E. Lieberman. Okay, the book of the week from last week that I'll talk about tonight is 4,000 Weeks by Oliver Berkman. 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals. And so that title, 4,000 Weeks, is approximately the number of weeks in 80 years, which is about the length of the the average human life, 4,000 weeks. And it's interesting, sometimes when you hear that number, it sounds like not a lot, or it can also sound like a lot. Uh, When I told the title to a few people throughout this week, I got some different responses. Um, But it's interesting that we can think of time in different ways. And as I mentioned in the second segment, I'll go a little bit deeper on some of my own thoughts about that. But in this book, Oliver Berkman is giving some advice about how to think about time and the time that we have and even that the time we have we don't know how much time we have really the next week, the next minute uh, is not really guaranteed in any way and that actually plays into some of his advice. He actually talks about how he himself used to be a one of these productivity, Guru, not gurus necessarily, but he would write about it and talk a lot about being productive. And you see a lot of this type of movements about how to be the most productive you can be and the most efficient you can be in different techniques, the Pomodoro method or this other uh, the methods that, that, you know, how to manage your time, how to clear your email, things of that sort. And so he himself was in that camp and lived that life and also was promoting uh, those types of ideas and ideals and he essentially says that that's a misguided approach to life and the time that we have and so um, I'll explain why he says that's the case but another important point he brings up one that for me is critically important in this year actually or now no, I should say last year 2021 I read a few books on this theme that really made me recognize how important it is for us to recognize that our life is finite now of course everyone logically and if you ask them will say that they know they're going to die or they don't think they're going to live forever but we do often approach life in that way and so in this book oliver berkman repeatedly you see this thing This uh, concept the finitude of life or that we basically have a finite or limited life and actually embracing and accepting that so I think we often avoid thinking about our death because it creates a death anxiety or we can have a death anxiety so in the emotional sense we proceed as if we are not gonna die there's this mindset that we will always have more time. I can always do it later or even the sense that there's a future me. I talked about it a bit last week, but this future me that's going to do so many things or I have so many plans and ideas and someday I will get to them. And we do this, I think, because it does quell some of that death anxiety. But I think that's really harmful to us because when we have that mindset, we actually don't value our time enough. Because the feeling is I always will have more. There will always be another tomorrow, another next year, month, whatever it is to do something or to do that thing, to try that thing. Maybe I don't think I'm ready yet. Why should I rush it? And we find all sorts of ways to avoid making ourselves uncomfortable in the ways that'll make us grow and do something more meaningful. But we choose that comfort and we can use this as our ally. Well, there will always be more time. And that's actually why I think it's very loving to remind ourselves and others, although it sounds dark, that you are going to die. Your life will not go on forever. And if you don't choose to do things in this moment, you're not guaranteed to be able to do it in some future moment. You definitely won't be able to do it now. And there's always going to be a difference of doing something now versus doing something later. And you will inevitably miss out on doing some of the things that you would like to do. So to me this is very important and I was happy he brought up that point very strongly and he quotes different philosophers authors thinkers as well along this path of describing why we should think about time in a different way and that recognizing our mortality is actually a beautiful thing a wonderful thing not something to fear but something that if we avoid we are more likely to waste our lives away so going back to how i said he used to be very much into these you know productivity and life hacks and how to live this most efficient life but he realized that that was really misguided and not the right way to approach our time in our lives first of all as he makes clear several times you can't do everything doesn't mean you can't get to things that are important to you which is important to actually think of what is important to you but there's no way to get to literally everything when we live our lives and anything we are doing we are choosing one thing and deciding not to do any of the other things that we can do with that moment this is why actually i really like i think it's Uh, in the book Road Less Traveled by M. Scott Peck, where he says, love is time and attention. And I think that has a lot of value because time is this valuable thing. It is this resource that we know. We only have a limited amount of it. And so who we share that to and who we give our attention to with our time is very valuable and a sign of love. And really, if we don't give someone time and attention, we can't say we really love them or we truly love them if we're not giving them any of our time and attention. So we, we have a limited amount of time and so we can't think how do I do everything because that's not possible. It's this type of dream that we're chasing that somehow we're gonna finish everything and then be calm or then be able to do the thing we want to do. I can't work on the book I wanna write or this project or this thing or I have no time for relationships, but then someday I will. And really, we do this to avoid having to, to face it, facing the anxiety of doing that thing. But we use this excuse that I have to wait till I get everything else done before I can do those things. And so we have to try to think of it in a different way. Recognize that you won't do most things or you won't do almost everything in your life. Or when it comes to dating, sometimes people think, well, are you settling by choosing someone? How do you know there's not someone better out there? for you. And the reality is almost definitely there is someone better out there for you if we think of literally every person you could be with. But you don't have this infinite time to find someone and then find that right person and have a relationship. There are these genuine time constraints that we have to be realistic that you find a good person and then with them you build a life. But this is another way or tool of avoidance. Well, I don't know if it's the best person, so shouldn't I wait? But that's really just our anxiety, doing the talking and the living for us. And that's what I think is so crucial, not to let your anxiety choose your life for you. And this is something that almost every day I encounter with clients because you see this fear or anxiety to do the things that matter, which is understandable, something like a intimate romantic relationship. We want it very badly, but it also scares us, we all have a fear of intimacy to some degree, because as much as it feels good to be close, when we get very close, we can get very hurt by that person by something happening to the relationship, it just opens us up and makes us vulnerable in that way. So we'll always have some mixed feeling some level of ambivalence. For some people, it'll be more than others. But we all have some of that. And so when you talk to someone and explore what they want, or what they're doing in their life, you can hear them walking back what they want, in order to play it safe, saying, Oh, you know, I really want to do this. But you know, you never know how it's going to work out, or I should probably wait till da 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 da." And you can hear that ambivalence, that they want something. But the fear of The risk involved, how they can get hurt, how maybe it doesn't work out will scare them, all deters them and they find a way to walk themselves back into their comfort zone. Walk ourselves back into that cage that we hold the key to, but tell ourselves we're stuck in here when in fact we are not. And so if we actually think about it, we have to choose the things that we want in our lives. And uh, I think he addresses that in the book to a degree. For me, what's important is to recognize what's meaningful in a life and living a meaningful life and that theme came up um, in the book what is a meaningful life for you and really thinking about it accordingly that that's what you want to create of course there's no guarantees you'll have the time to do all those things or that you won't Uh, Your life can end at any minute, of course, but to think about what you would want in your full life to me is very important. I think unfortunately most people most of the time are letting life happen to them rather than choosing life. They get involved with certain things, with work, with uh, some engagement, some family things, and then they don't even realize how their days are going and they feel like they have no other choice, but this is life now. And I think it's very important to be more deliberate and more conscious about how we are choosing to live our lives and what's in it. And it could take some planning and preparing, which is similar to some of this productivity hacking and things can have some of that theme. But this is a different type of mindset that I know I can't do everything actually. So what do I want to make sure I do? Even with clients, sometimes I'll ask them, imagine you're 70 or 80 years old, What do you think you would regret not doing in your life? And now we know we're not very good at predicting what we'll feel, but sometimes some very important things will come up for people. And in a way, it's getting them to face their mortality in a way. Now you're old and maybe too old to start some of these things that might take a long time. What do you think you would regret if you didn't do it in your life? And oftentimes, depending on who the person is and what's going on or not happening in their life. It could be things like getting married or having relationships, having children, but then also doing certain things, trying certain things, attempting to, if it's not change careers, pursue something that they've been afraid to pursue. When we face our finitude, when we face our mortality in a real way, It actually opens us up to recognize, I won't always have the time. I can't just pretend time will always be there for me to do what I want to do. And we have to consciously face that fact. I'm going to die. I've been given a limited life, and hopefully you're very grateful for that. You could have been given nothing. And that was, I forgot whose quote that was, but something like that in the book. But you could have had no time, or you could have had less than you've already had. But what do you want to do if you could try to create the life that you want? And I hope you will take that very seriously, knowing there won't always be another tomorrow, another year, another decade to do the things. And also there's the sense that I'll do it when it feels right. But again, going back to anxiety, not living our lives for us. Most things that are difficult, challenging, new. It's almost always going to feel wrong or not completely right. Even if you really want it, there's going to be a big pull holding you back. You have to recognize the anxiety that's there, but hopefully also recognize the thing you want to do is worth it, and you don't want the anxiety to make the decision for you and go forward anyway. But this book, 4,000 Weeks, by Oliver Berkman, I highly recommend it. I thought it was a great book. I chose it specifically because the end of the year makes us think about time, and how we're using our time reflecting on our past year usually and looking forward to the the next year so i thought it'd be an interesting book for this week specifically but i really do think it's a great uh book and there is some even more practical advice i didn't get to all of that uh tonight but i I highly recommend you check out the book Four Thousand weeks by oliver berkman let's go to our first commercial break we'll be right back welcome back So I wanted to continue with some thoughts on time and how we think about time, not in some deep uh, way of physics and and what it means or as a dimension, but of the psychological experience of time that we have. And of course, in a way, time is a very real thing, but it also is a subjective type of thing in our experience that gets affected by so many things. In actually the book, 4,000 Weeks, Oliver Berkman talked about how before clocks, uh, you know, people didn't measure time in the same way we do now. They would measure them more often by things like how long an activity took. So how often it took to do something could be used as a measure of time. And in a way, the ways that people did things as they did things took as long as they took. So how long does it take to milk the cows? As long as it takes. You don't measure it necessarily by some other unit of time or measurement of time. You just do everything in the time that it takes. Uh, But when I think about how we think about time, some things jump out at me or some thoughts have come to me that I wanted to share. So one is if we go back to the start of the pandemic in March of 2020, um, I think for so many people, myself included, the experience of time became very warped and very strange, dilated in some ways or maybe narrowed in some ways. But it became very confusing because many of the things we used to help us keep track of time, the ways the days of the week mattered and then weekends um the things we were doing activities that were happening events that were happening so many of those came to a screeching halt so that all of a sudden it was harder to keep track of time in the same way which shows how much we are dependent or how conditioned we've become to these types of things of uh you know even the days of the week they seem like such a real thing right you feel like well, the week ends and then monday begins or even the fact that there's a five-day week and a weekend and then monday again does feel new to everyone i think there is this sense that is a little bit new the week monday is different than thursday in that way even though it's just our way of keeping track of the time just like new year feels like such a big deal i remember feeling actually there's something i'm going to do early in, in january And when it was the end of December, it felt a lot further away and I realized there was some way that December 31st to January 1st, although it's just a day, in some ways it felt longer because it's a year. So I think I felt like it was a further away thing than it actually was. And of course, that's the Gregorian calendar, which many countries follow, but many don't. So for those of us that use that calendar, it was a new year and it felt like a changing of some sorts for many other people, just another day in their year. And so they won't have that same sense of something new. And so when we think about that, we recognize that the feeling we have about a newness or about change or about the structure of the calendar, it's not something inherent to time itself or to experience itself, but it's to our structuring that we're putting on the time and the experience, the ways that we are labeling our time that makes it feel that way so just like many things that we feel that feel so real we can recognize that it's coming from something other than just some natural thing that's inherent in whatever it is that we're experiencing Um, doesn't have to be something significant like the new year but other other ways that we measure time matter there's also a way that most of us I can speak for myself definitely we feel like we're moving through the calendar even in a way we say oh we're back to february or it's back to this time or we are here now we almost have this image of seeing ourselves going through the calendar and so there's a way that november feels or we think of november versus april and you might see it on a calendar in a particular way and even when we think of anniversaries so it could be for good things or bad things as a therapist sometimes we know okay if someone lost a loved one last year the anniversary of that death can be very intense or might bring up a lot of memories and feelings and it's one that you just want to be ready for or at least be cognizant cognizant of but really it's just our way of keeping track of time it's 365 days or let's say if it was a leap year 366 days You wouldn't think, well, it's different because of that leap year. They're just a way that the calendar almost grounds us in a way, which we're just so accustomed to that it feels like almost a physical place. And reminded of the book uh, Mind in Motion by Barbara Tversky, uh, which was talking about how important our body and movement are in our understanding and the ways that we think more than we. Tend to recognize, and I think this is in a way related to some of the themes that came up in that book, and maybe even this was discussed in the book. I read it a couple of years ago now. But this theme that where we see ourselves in the calendar has some significance in a strange way. Why should it matter again? Okay, it's December 28th. If it's a very good day for you, let's say, or something good happened on that day. Um, for the world let's say well then you would wonder well why does that date have a significance it signifies something for us but it feels like we're back in some place it's also an arbitrary way of of celebrating something so birthdays for example it's a way of okay once a year everyone gets to be celebrated on a day and this I think gets uh, exemplified further when people If they've come from another country, a lot of, I know immigrants, for example, that came from Iran, they say, oh yeah, and my driver's license, it says January 9th, but really my birthday is January 14th. And, you know, so it's like, which one do you celebrate? And there's some arbitrariness to it. But, you know, a lot of times we just pick one. And even if you pick one, let's say you picked the one of when you were born in Iran. Well, the timing of it, if you celebrate it, is that it might be that day in Iran. But if you're in Los Angeles, it's actually later in that day. Anyway, so we could see that there's some arbitrariness of some of these things, but we give a feeling. We say, okay, this is going to be your special day. And, and we do that. But coming back to this experience of the passage of time, and even actually for me, one thing I remember, and I shared it back then, uh, it does feel like a long time ago. And that's another uh, kind of theme or um, concept in this experience of time, how long time feels. Um, a long time ago, almost two years ago now, at the beginning of the pandemic that one of the things that actually allowed me to stay a little bit grounded was my books of the week, which I know sounds strange and I couldn't have predicted that. But I remember knowing that, okay, I'm getting to Monday when I finish the book, that itself gave me some sense of time because so many things had stopped. Um, Even actually, I didn't do the show in person for a while, but I still read the books. I don't know how many weeks it was, not that many that I didn't do a show. Um, My work had changed, figuring out how to do sessions no longer in person, and people were trying to figure out what to do with that. But so many things had shifted that I remember there was something, almost a security I had in knowing that time was passing in a certain way or the structure of time based on finishing the books each week in those couple of weeks that were there, which I I couldn't have imagined that having that significance, but it did feel a certain way you know another thing I've thought about is when we think of the calendar and we say that okay we're coming back to January 3rd today and you know we go to another day and it feels like we're going somewhere I mentioned this to my brother once I was like you know imagine if we just didn't keep calendars in these way we just counted the number of days from a certain time let's just say even from uh, if you're using the Gregorian calendar and using around the birth of Jesus, we just had days, so I don't know what it would be, like 2,000 times 300. I can't do the math. I don't know if that's 60,000 or whatever. But let's just say, and instead of saying, today is January 3rd, I told you today is 70,342, and then tomorrow is 70,343. There's a way that actually when I say that even, it's almost a little bit sad or depressing. It feels kind of empty if the days were just counted one after Another, I don't know if you have that same feeling as I'm saying it, but if just each day was the next one. And so you say, oh, yeah, when did that happen? Oh, that was 59,341. I don't know if it's easier for us to keep track of the days when there's years because it breaks it up into chunks um, or if there's some sense of continuity when we come back, as I'm saying, you know, it's like we're back at the same place. Oh, we're back in January. But I think it's kind of interesting that There is, for me, this almost sad feeling of thinking of just the days as a number and each one added to the next. I don't know if it loses its significance, if it loses this sense of knowing where I am, so it's a disorienting feeling. If it's feeling that the days don't really matter so much, there's no connection between them or between this year and last year or between our past and even why do we even have to have years? It could just be these consecutive days. And yes, a year is how long it takes for our planet or any planet to go around the sun but why does that have to be something we count it could be something that's happening there's lots of things that happen the moon phases change which is close to a month but it's not exactly a month so we don't count them exactly or lots of other things are happening in the world but we don't necessarily measure them and count them in a certain way so we don't have to even count the year so How old is your son? We would just say how many days they are. And even why does it have to be days? It could be minutes, it can be hours, all sorts of things that that can be there. And so I'm just saying this to make us reconsider, recognize that there's so many things we of course take for granted, but that we don't realize we're taking for granted. And for example, how we measure the time can be a big one. Why do days even have to matter? It could just be minutes or seconds ever. This is this second, and this is that time. It would be hard to coordinate certain things, but we could just do things that way. So there is an arbitrariness or some ways that we have picked things to structure them. But if we don't recognize it, we might not recognize that the influence that has on how we think about time and how we are experiencing time. I mean, when we think of a new year, what does that really even mean? Not that much. I don't think any of us are so uh, aware or cognizant of when we're passing the sun again or going around the sun. And different cultures and countries use a different time to call the new year. So even if you use the same length of time, why is this point, when the earth crosses this point, the important one in the Gregorian calendar? Well, that's the one they use, but it doesn't necessarily mean something significant. So it's just something funny about how we look at time. Another thing we know is that as we get older, we tend to experience time more quickly or it doesn't feel as long. I remember being a child and we would have these road, road trips, or not really road trips, but going to see our cousins. And sometimes it's like a one and a half hour drive, let's say from Los Angeles to Bakersfield, It's an hour and 45 minutes about without much traffic. And I remember as a kid feeling like this is so long. And then going to Fresno, my other cousin's house, which was like three and a half hours, that felt like an eternity. Like it took a lot of preparation and that car ride was going to be a long time. Now we do it. I just did it about two months ago. Um, And it's, you know, well, we hit some traffic that made it long, but it's not that long at all. And it feels so different. So we know the passage of time can definitely change as we get older. And there's some theories behind this. One is that what makes time feel longer in a way is new experiences. And Oliver Berkman talked about in this book, 4,000 Weeks, new experiences. So of course, as a kid, more things are new to you because you haven't experienced so many things. And as you get older, less things are new to you. And also we tend to get into more routines and have a structured life. So things kind of happen to the point where our days can blend together. Now, some people will say to make your time feel longer, to dilate it in a way you can do constantly do new things and there could be something to that having new experiences oliver berkman also said there's a way we can look at the world with new eyes or engage ourselves more in what we are doing in a way that will make the experiences more meaningful or won't just feel like a blur or feel like they are all the same but again we can see that this concept of time and i know there's a scientific way of looking at it as what is time and Uh, you know, relativity and all these things that are a bit beyond my understanding and far beyond my uh, ability to explain them because I don't quite understand them. But psychologically, we can see that this concept of time or the way we look at time is not necessarily this clear-cut thing. And we can sometimes pause, that takes some time, and take a look at how we're conceptualizing things and how we measure things and how that might have an impact on how we experience certain things that we aren't even aware of. All right, that brings us to our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Um, It's kind of funny. I was thinking before uh, the break, I was talking about time and some ways we think about it and almost like it's not that important. But the whole time I'm also eyeing the clock to see when to end the segment. So there's definitely a significance of time, especially in the way that we coordinate our lives. And that's actually why time was invented or the ways that we Keep track of time was invented, especially for coordinating things like workers and and uh, train schedules and different things like that. So anyway, uh, time is meaningful and meaningless simultaneously. And speaking of time, let's look at the books of the week, the top ten books of the week from the time of January to December of 2021. So these are my top ten books of 2021, and as I usually do it. In chronology of when I read the books, so it's not my ranked list, but the top 10 books from last year, which is always tough. I usually uh, really, really enjoy most of them. Some obviously will be more than others, Um, but usually making this list, it's more just a process of thinking about the books a bit and, and sharing with you some of my thoughts and insights into why I picked those books. And this is or was the fifth year that I have done this. So something like 260 books in the last five years. And uh, I know New Year's goals can be sometimes themselves very arbitrary or seem empty. But this is one that I made going into 2017 and didn't even know if I can do it. It was just something let's try. I knew I wanted to read some more. And so I said, let me make a goal of a book a week. Uh, I wasn't even sure I would do it for the show. And then it turned into its own thing. And so here we are going into the sixth year of doing the Books of the Week. So I'm all about setting goals, goals that matter to you, and trying to follow through with those. And I'm glad I've been able to do this for the past five years. And I must say the accountability of having to talk about it on the show is a huge part of why I've been able to do it. So knowing that I have to finish the book And also know the book well enough to be able to talk about it has served to really make me finish the books and also read them carefully. So thank you to you out there listening. And related to that, I'm always open to getting some book recommendations. So if you have any books in mind that I have not read yet on the show, please send those recommendations my way uh, on social media. All right, let's get to the books of the year for 2021. Number one is Swan's Way by Marcel Proust so this is the first of seven volumes of In Search of Lost Time and so I read another one the second of the volume the second volume as well and so this was my first uh, introduction or book I read from Marcel Proust who is known as one of the greatest if not best novelists of all time and it was really a remarkable book to read and I have the other well I have four of them and I still have to get the seventh one, um, the next four. Uh, but I really enjoy just the way that he writes and the depth of how he goes into certain memories so deeply and seems to really understand the human experience. I think any a novelist who is good uh, for at what they do will have to be able to understand how we think, feel, respond to certain things. And in this book is the famous scene or the incident of the Madeline where uh, he, as an adult, bites into a madeleine and gets trans, uh, transported back to this memory of when he was a young child with his aunt having a madeleine and this whole experience, and then it traces this long memory, which is a very famous scene from that book. But overall, it was my introduction to that to him, Marcel Proust, as a writer, and greatly enjoyed his work. Next on the list is Think Again by Adam Grant, and I really enjoyed this book. In a time when everyone is trying to be so certain and you go on social media and whether it's pundits or just people on social media being so certain that they know exactly why things are the way they are and not questioning it and not wanting to have genuine debates with one another because they have to say they are so right. And we tend to respect people for saying they know exactly how something is and not questioning at all. This book was a great book. That encourages us to think again, to to recognize that you don't know as much as you know and what you think you're so sure of, you shouldn't shouldn't be so sure of. And that actually we should reward in ourselves and in others when people are open to hearing other sides. Express that they aren't so certain, especially when with most things we can't be that certain. So uh, I really appreciated uh, his contribution in that book. That's Think Again by Adam Grant. Number three, The Sum of Us by Heather McGee. And this book was very powerful in that it showed, when we tend to think of racism, we think of, let's say, for example, in the United States, racism against black Americans, we think of how they are hurt by it. And of course, they are, and they are the, uh, the victims of it, or the ones that are being affected by it the most. But in this book, Heather McGee does a great job of showing how it actually affects everyone, that it's not just let's say, black Americans who are negatively impacted by racism, but there are ripple effects and implications for everyone. And an example from that book was these community pools that were becoming quite popular. I forgot when it was, it was maybe the 50s or 60s. But anyway, it was becoming a place where people were all going and having a good time, but because of racism, people didn't like that blacks and whites were being together and how to deal with this issue. And eventually led to in many cities these pools just disappearing so this is a great example of how although it was uh, something that was racist against the black Americans everyone paid a price for it in that book she does a great job of showing the economic and overall costs of racism to all people and how that could be a way of waking us up further to take more action on that so that was the sum of us by Heather McGee Number four on the book, uh, on the list, sorry, is A Matter of Death and Life by Irvin Yalom and Marilyn Yalom. And uh, this book was brought to my attention by um, Sarah in Germany. So thank you for that. And this book relates to today's book, 4,000 Weeks and Facing Our Mortality. Even you see it's a matter of death and life, not life and death. Um, But in this book, Irvin Yalom who is an incredible um, just thinker but in the field of psychology someone incredible and I actually had the great pleasure about two months ago of having a session with him he still does individual sessions he says because of his age he doesn't do ongoing therapy but he does essentially these one-time consultations and i emailed him and you responded quickly and made an appointment. so I highly recommend you doing that uh, and getting to have a session with him. Um, and I have a friend who just had their own session with with him and and really enjoyed it as well, which I was so happy to hear about. Uh, but coming back to this book, he wrote it with his wife Marilyn Yollum, Um knowing that she was going to die with from a terminal illness, they said, let's write this book together. And so the book is very, very powerful it alternates chapters one by Irvin one by Marilyn talking about what's happening during that time but from their perspective and so they alternate chapters Um, I guess this is kind of a spoiler but it it really is quite obvious that this will be happening but then Marilyn does die in the last few chapters are from um, Irvin uh, Yalom talking about his experience dealing with grief and what's going on very very intense very powerful but I think very beautiful and As I mentioned in the first segment, um, I I said there was a few books I read this past year in 2021, and this was one of them that really made me recognize the importance of facing our mortality face head on. Uh, In that book, he talks about how our death anxiety, in his opinion, is uh, correlated to our regrets. So the more regrets you have, the more anxiety you have about facing death. And I think there's a lot of wisdom there. So that, that book I really... I'm happy that I got to read this year. The next book is The Hidden Spring by Mark Solms. And this was a great book looking at consciousness and um, putting feelings really at the center of consciousness and how there is this homeostatic tendency that is very critical when it comes to consciousness, trying to get us back to homeostasis, back to a uh, place that we need to be in in order to um, be... Uh, okay to survive. And so I thought that was a great book that really shifted my own thinking on consciousness. And I was also very lucky to have uh, Mark Solms on the show a few weeks after I I talked about his book, but I really, really enjoyed his book, The Hidden Spring. Number six is A Sense of Self by Veronica O'Kean. And this was a very powerful book in looking at ways that we might not recognize we have this sense of self or our experiences or recognizing how central feeling and also memory is to to who we are and creating that sense of self and as is often the case we can learn a lot by looking at places where things break down and so she shared some stories of patients who uh, experienced psychosis and how that could affect their experience that even though they got over the psychosis and recognized that it was not real the memories were still real and they were still going to be affecting them. Uh, but that was a very powerful book in looking at the sense of self from uh, a different perspective or adding some perspective to it for me. Number seven, Demystifying Dis- Disability by Emily Ladaw, And uh, this was a great book looking at different themes or concepts uh, that might come up in encountering the, the disability or disabled community, um, including things like what to say what not to say but of course as she pointed out often it's not that there's one thing that everyone wants to hear when we're trying to be sensitive we have to recognize we learn some things some general themes but we have to recognize each individual as an individual and not think well I know this is what you want me to say or how you want me to say it Um, but it was another book for me making me more aware of disability issues in 2020, I read a few books, or I think it was 2020, yeah. That really brought uh, some of these themes more to mind, but this was another one that furthered my understanding on the disabled community. Dem- demystifying Disability by Emily Ladaw. Number eight is The End of Trauma by George Bonanno. And the, uh, Dr. Bonanno is a researcher at Columbia University now doing great research on Trauma and and PTSD and how we often tend to overestimate its prevalence. And that was, for me, eye-opening, recognizing that I, too, was doing that Um, as a therapist. There's something we can consider an availability heuristic that you often are seeing individuals who are having and facing the negative consequences of going through things that are traumatic or abuse or different things like that. Um, But the majority of people don't have that type of a PTSD response. So it's important to make it clear that um, the abuse is very, very harmful, and it's not to say that people don't have PTSD-type responses. And not only that, people have different responses that might not meet, let's say, full criteria for PTSD, but still affect them tremendously. But nonetheless, in this book, there's a lot of insights in what trauma is and looks like and also resilience and different ways that we can try to promote that within ourselves and others so that was the end of trauma by george bonano number nine nobody's normal by roy richard grinker and um, talk about judging a book by its cover judging a book by its title i was already very hooked on that nobody's normal but in this book uh, roy richard grinker does a great job actually tracing his own family going back a few generations or I think several of them were psychiatrists if not like the previous three before himself um, and tracing the history of mental illness and how it was categorized and it was great uh, account of looking at how what we tend to think of as such real mental illness categories and ways we look at things have evolved and changed over time and some of the very arbitrary ways that certain things got listed as normal and abnormal and that really, at the end of the day, nobody is normal in the sense that if you have all the characteristics of a human being and you try to find someone who's average on all of them, for example, it doesn't exist. And also, sometimes these people who are very average um, don't tend to be very interesting or contribute a lot to society either, in a way. So there was an interesting study he talked about that looked at that. But anyway, this book does a great job of doing a historical review of how mental illness came to be categorized described defined and even this theme or concept of normality of being normal how that was introduced into the culture and it was was quite fascinating book last on the list which was the most recent book of the ten is the war of art by stephen pressfield Um, this is a great book to help motivate you and was for me as well uh, to do something creative or artistic or to live a more creative artistic life and to not hold back and to recognize that it takes a lot of work. Uh, he talks about facing the resistance. That's a big part, of the whole first part of the book, capital R, resistance. And there's so many ways that we resist doing the things that involve taking risks, doing something artistic, trying something different and all the ways that that can show up. Um, And then he also talked about becoming a professional and how we have to make it a kind of job where you're constantly working at it, not to think you have to wait till motivation hits you and then you work. You have to keep working. Uh, It actually reminds me of the book 4,000 Weeks where it had that theme of not waiting for the time to come to do the work, but to just do the work now. Uh, And then at the end of the book, talking about how to tap into the muse or whether it's something you consider metaphysical or just the unconscious, how to get that involved uh, and get yourself to create something um, creative, create some kind of art. So those are the 10 books from 2021. Really, it's a uh, a joy to read the books and then to talk about them on the show. It really has shifted the way I learn and I look at things and Making it this kind of a a habit has been wonderful for me. And I know people often ask me, well, how how do you get them done each week? You must speed read. And I really don't. I read quite at a normal pace or the average pace. That's funny. I just said normal after talking about nobody's normal. But I read at a pretty typical pace. It's not very fast, especially because I want to be able to talk about the books. It just takes time like any type of goal we set for ourselves. And time was one of the themes of the show. So that works out well. But that brings us to the end of tonight's show. As always, a big thank you to Amir here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delaqui. Have a wonderful night.